With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the March 15th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff. And if you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see that I've returned to the alliterative show title today. It's Speech, Sugar, Socialized Medicine, and Spontaneous Order. And I'm going to try to keep it in that order as we go through the topics. Uh, If you go, like I said, to the blog, you'll see in the program notes the list of all the stories and stuff that I plan to discuss. Last week in the afternoon, just after I'd finished the show, I realized that the Ayn Rand Institute announced the project. I've been talking about the project on this show for years now. I've put the link to my little announcement on the blog about it in the program notes for today. So if you haven't heard about it yet, you can see finally what the project is. And and what it is, is that I am helping to create a script, a very, uh, you know, kind of abbreviated condensation of Atlas Shrugged so that cartoonist Bosch Faustin can create a graphic novel based on Rand's magnum opus. So that's the project, and there's been a substantial chunk of it that we've had looked over by the publisher of the script already, and we've been back and forth with them about that, you know, they suggest some changes, and we came back and accepted some and rejected others, and things are going well. I will keep you posted on progress about it, as time goes on. The publisher itself has not announced it yet. This is just something that ARI put out there, but it's kind of cool. Hi, Jean, over there in the chat room. I assume everybody can hear okay. Daniel says, today we may be welcoming visitors from Reddit. That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, I'm supposed to be on my best behavior. Aren't I always? I'll try. I'll try to be good. I will try to be good. So, 
as I said, we're going to go through speech, sugar, socialized medicine, and spontaneous order. And by speech, I mean freedom of speech. And in that vein, we have seen a, you know, kind of expansion of what I've been referring to on this show as a culture of censorship. Censorship, strictly speaking, is something that only government can do. Censorship technically is when government tries to restrict people's speech activities one way or the other. But what I've been talking about on this show for a while is that people within the culture who aren't government actors will sometimes contribute to a culture of censorship, a culture that is ripe for censorship and almost inviting government to restrict speech on behalf, of course, their own favored point of view. And we've seen a lot of that on campus recently. There's been violence on campus where students have decided that it is now appropriate to use force to stop people with viewpoints that they think are offensive to stop those people from speaking. And we've seen that at Berkeley, and now we've seen that also at Middlebury. So I want to talk a little bit about that because there's been more discussion of the Middlebury incident in the New York Times and some of the opinion pieces, which I think are worthwhile. I've uh, got a little bit of John Cleese on political correctness, which is always fun. And Steve Simpson wrote an excellent piece for The Hill that we'll talk about there. We've had a disturbing expansion of the culture of censorship in a neighborhood in California, Boyle Heights, where a group of so-called activists are cheering the closing of an art gallery, which they achieve through pressure. Um, and that actually ties into something that your own book talked on about on his show this week. So we'll get to that as well. Sugar. Uh, we're finding out that the sugar industry paid scientists to point the blame at fat for various diseases when in fact it's sugar that is to blame. So we'll talk a bit about that. Um, and of course, Obamacare light, as some of us are calling it, the saga continues. We'll look at some of the latest developments on that front, tying some of it in to readings that I had for my libertarian theories of the law this week. It just seems to all happen to, to come together. I don't know if I'm just seeing connections everywhere whenever I'm awake, but it seems that the readings that I do for that class tie into what I want to talk about on this show an awful lot. And then a couple other stories. So as I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com is where I post the program notes each week. If you want to call in and you want to chime in in a way that's not just over there in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio, we love the chat. But if you want to call in, the number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Oh, Daniel says... That when he talks about being on your best behavior, he says he means the chat room, not me. Okay, cool. I want to put the little angel emoticon into the chat room because I am. I'm just, I'm just so angelic. I'm so, so perfectly behaved all the time here on this show. Uh, so how's the sound, everyone? Sound sounds good? It's sounding good to me. Things do sound, at least on my end, a little bit different and better since I have this new setup, which was made possible by a generous donation from a listener. A listener 
actually uh, contributed a large fraction of what it cost to get a new computer set up. And so I was able to get a nicer setup, much nicer setup than I would have been able to on my own. So I've got a screen in front of me. You guys may have seen the photo that I posted on Instagram. A uh, screen in front of me with my content and then a screen a little bit to the right of me which has my blog talk windows and stuff open so I can see you guys in the chat room. I can see that I'm still connected to blog talk throughout the course of the show. So as long as I'm semi-conscious, I have the you know, perceptual evidence that I to the listener who made that possible because it's, it's been really cool. And it's going to be cool for some other things that I've got in the pipeline as well that I will talk about. Uh, question. Did I make any adjustments since last week? It sounds better. No, I haven't made any adjustments since last week. It could be that I have the microphone placed slightly differently and then maybe I need to be more scientific because now I'm not keeping the microphone sitting on my desk. I kind of move it up and down to this extra little shelf. Oh yeah, I had the cold last week. Yes. So that's probably the difference right there. I'm going to sound a lot better without a cold. There's no doubt of that. People said last week they couldn't really tell, but certainly I could tell. And I'm thinking if you if you really compare side by side that you'd be able to tell too. Okay, so let's dive in. Speech, freedom of expression, and the pieces that I thought were interesting to look at this week. The first is a the woman who was the liberal professor at Middlebury who was going to comment on Charles Murray's uh, talk. Her name is Allison Stanger, and she wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times. The headline is, Understanding the Angry Mob at Middlebury That Gave Me a Concussion. Uh, I posted this on Facebook, and I got one person who commented saying, oh, well, she's got really nothing new here, and she doesn't understand these people are just anti-reality. and stuff. I think you have to go a little deeper, and I think you have to give a little credit to a liberal like Stanger, who she herself rejects the use of violence to stop speech. Very, very important. And she's trying to understand how students got to this point. Now, mind you, is she fully understanding that probably much of what she teaches in her class encourages these students no uh, but you know what she does say about the Trump presidency in part kind of instigating a little of this or at least you know sort of lighting a fire under some of this I think should be taken more seriously than it is uh, there are some elements of the Trump presidency that do pose a risk to women and minorities. Uh, it's overblown, granted. It, I think it's, it is overblown, but there is an element that is being encouraged. For example, I've talked on this show about they want to have a law in Texas that is going to protect doctors who want to lie to pregnant women about whether the fetus they're carrying has Down syndrome. Typically, a doctor would be obligated to inform a woman correctly about the results of any genetic testing about a fetus, and then the woman would be entitled to make any decision legally open to her, including choosing to have an abortion, which would be a tough decision, but you can understand uh, why a woman would do that. 
but in Texas they want to protect doctors from any liability for outright lying, not just being negligent. I've seen doctors held liable for negligence in not correctly informing a woman about the status of the fetus, and then she gives birth to a child with severe birth defects and has a tremendous financial and emotional and physical burden on her hands that she may not have chosen. And I've seen doctors held liable for this. What Texas wants is to put the doctors in deliberate line. And this is something that is being emboldened under a Trump presidency. They think that he's somebody who's who's sympathetic to this anti-abortion stuff, among other things. So there is some element of this. It's part of understanding it. At least what you could do is you could be putting together an error theory that has to do with the Trump presidency. I don't think that, you know, you look at what this woman, you know, this woman's trying to figure out how is it that these students came to the point where they thought that violence was the way to counter speech that offended them with which they disagreed vehemently. How did they get to this point? And she seems to be honestly trying to do this. Uh, She repeatedly in this piece talks about the need to use reason and not emotion. Um, You know, that once you give up polite discussion and reason, that's when you're going to get to the point of violence. So there's that as well. One of the things that really struck me is an observation that she made about the attendees of the talk. And let me see if I can find it. I know that I I pulled this quote out on Facebook, but she was saying that when, you know, she was looking out at the audience, right? Um, She noticed that those intent on disrupting, I'm quoting from her now, disrupting the speech, uh, didn't make eye contact. She says, those who wanted the event to take place made eye contact with me. Those intent on disrupting it steadfastly refused to do so. She says they couldn't look at me directly because if they had, they would have seen another human being, end quote. And, of course, if you know accounts of what happened afterwards, the students, these protesters, ended up actually using violence against her as well because she was attempting to shield their guest, Charles Murray, And she got her head yanked and everything. And I guess she got somewhat of a concussion, she says. So um, I, I, you know, applaud the liberals' attempts to do this. They don't have the right ideas. And so they don't really have the ability that, for example, a Steve Simpson has to explain how it is that the students got to this point. But there are a number, number of people in her boat who are rejecting you know, of course, this use of violence. And they're they're kind of dismayed. They just don't know. And they don't understand how you got here. There was another piece in the New York Times this, this week that similarly takes a really good critical look at what's going on on campus. This one written by Frank Bruni. The headline is The Dangerous Safety of College. It's this idea that in college, you're supposed to have this safe space and be shielded from offense. And he, uh, just quoting from the piece, he says that these college students have been done a terrible disservice. All of us have, he says, and we need to reacquaint ourselves with what education really means and what colleges do and don't owe their charges. 
Physical safety? Absolutely. A smooth, validating passage across an ocean of ideas? No. If anything, colleges owe students turbulence because it's from a contest of perspectives and an assault on presumptions that truth emerges and with it true confidence, end quote. Let me read that last part again, because what I've been really trying to nail down more concretely is the value of freedom of expression, the value of free speech. I I think I mentioned last week on last week's show that I was a bit dismayed at the Middlebury professors. I mean, again, you know, you, you have to applaud the Middlebury professors who stood up and said, no, this is not what we stand for. We reject the use of violence to stop people from speaking, from saying things that you find offensive or with what, you know, with what you vehemently disagree. Violence is not the answer to this. What the answer is, is more speech. We're glad about that. But what I was dismayed with was that Middlebury professor who was on uh, Tucker Carlson. And the two of them were agreeing that the need for free speech is somehow rooted in this idea of intellectual humility or this idea that, well, we don't really know anything. We don't really know what the truth is. And so, you know, we have to, uh, you know, basically be open to everything because we don't have the truth. And the value of a freedom of expression cannot depend solely on the idea that you don't know the true ideas. It couldn't be that you say, okay, well, now that, you know, Ayn Rand wrote her books and we know what the truth is and stuff. Now, you know, probably people listen to the show and they don't agree with everything Ayn Rand says, but suppose you do suppose like me, you think that, yes, here's the true philosophy. Even if you have that, even if you aren't, thinking, you know, that, oh, I know nothing, I know less than nothing. And so I need to be open to hearing all points of view forever, because I might change my mind. Even if that's not where you are, even if you think you know what the true ideas are, freedom of expression has a value for you, too. Uh, First of all, in just being able to express and articulate your own view. But insofar as you're going to be hearing other people's point of view, people who disagree with you, you want to hear the best, the most expertly articulated challenges to your point of view, right? The most difficult questions to answer that you possibly can that are out there. And it's always going to be the case that someone new, some new genius building on Everybody in the past, you know, suppose there's going to be the, you know, instead of, you know, Ayn Rand was kind of the, our next incarnation of Aristotle. Suppose there's going to be a next incarnation of Kant, you know, there's going to be some super genius who's going to challenge Rand's view. We want to have these people free to speak. We want to know what these challenges are. Why? So that we can figure out how is it that you best answer it? So again, I'm going to read from Bruni here. He says, if anything, colleges owe students turbulence. He says, because it's from a contest of perspectives and an assault on presumptions that truth emerges and with it true confidence, end quote. Now, you may already know what the truth is, 
but you're not going to really have confidence in your ability to understand, articulate, apply the truth to anything unless your understanding of the truth has been challenged, unless your presumptions have been assaulted. So it's not that you have to have this, you know, humble idea, oh my gosh, I know nothing. And so that's why free speech is valuable. I think that's a dangerous idea um, because anybody who then says, oh, well, I know everything. And so therefore I have no value for free speech. I'm not intellectually humble. That's ridiculous. And, and I've had this kind of contest with people, not a, not a contest per se, but I've, I've challenged the idea that Milo doesn't have any value in the battle for freedom of expression. And while you say, okay, well, maybe he just likes to throw grenades and, you know, do all sorts of outrageous things. He's just trying to get attention for himself, whatever he is. He is somebody who is being brave in the cause of freedom of speech. And his sort of presentation of the value of speech, as far as I can tell, doesn't have anything to do with humility. He doesn't seem to be humble in that regard. He seems to really think he knows what is right. I think he's wrong on a number of things, but he doesn't have that idea. Whereas some of these liberal, liberal professors are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, freedom of expression. We need to make sure and protect free speech. Why? Because there is no truth. We can't know anything, and so we have to let everybody speak equally. That's not the value. The value is in protecting freedom of thought. If you can't express, you can't really think. And, um, of course, being able to communicate, um, you know, being able to try to persuade people to your ideas so that you can change the culture for the better. Of course, in the realm of politics, you would like to be able to you know, go out there and freely express why you support one candidate or one piece of legislation versus another. What is wrong, for example, with the current Republican attempts to replace Obamacare, so-called replace Obamacare. All of this is very important, but I, I just think you know, that we need to make sure and not hang our hat on the idea of intellectual humility. And I was very happy to see that Bruni doesn't. He talks about having confidence in your ideas and how important that is. And that the only way to emerge from a college education, having any confidence in the ideas that you hold is encountering this contest of perspectives, encountering, excuse me, an assault on your presumptions. So Bravo to him and, you know, for identifying what it is that colleges do or don't owe us. Physical safety, yes. A freedom from being offended, not at all. Now, see in the chat room, I don't have any people adding anything to it. Like I said, feel free to call in. If you do call in and you do want to talk, what you'll need to do is also, um, I got a pop-up ad. New, new setup, can't get rid of Papa Bad. Also press one when you call in. So 760-888-5817. Uh, so I've got this John Cleese video that I've posted over there. And it's, it's just him rejecting political correctness in a wonderful way that only John Cleese can. And I'm paraphrasing because I'm not going to take the time to scroll over to Facebook and get the exact poll quote that I put out over there, but you can check it out over there as well. He says something to the effect of that 
and and he's quoting from a psychiatrist, you know, and he just he thought that this was a, a good salient point, and I think it was too. At the point where you can't control your own emotions, then you feel like suddenly you have to start trying to control other people's behavior. And so you could think of these students at the Middlebury campus who are so angry and upset at this viewpoint that's being expressed or that they think is being expressed by Charles Murray. By the way, one of the things that I wanted to applaud Professor Stanger at Middlebury for is that she pointed out in her piece that she was horrified at the fact in the weeks leading up to the Charles Murray event, a number of faculty were very critical of Murray And they were critical of Murray without ever having read him. Does that sound familiar? There are a number of people who just smear Ayn Rand without ever having really read her at all. And sure enough, this was happening with Charles Murray. So, you know, going back to the kids with their emotions, the kids are all upset. This guy, Murray, he's coming to campus. Oh, surely he's a racist and this and that. And apparently, if you actually read Murray, he's actually not a racist. But assume he was, right? Um, Assume he's some sort of racist, nationalist, whatever. Nonetheless, he should still be able to speak. And it shouldn't be an issue of, oh, well, you offend me. Therefore, we're going to stop you. But here are these students. Their emotions about this have been validated on their campus, right? They're told, oh, you poor little snowflakes, we're going to make you a safe space and et cetera, et cetera, right? There's hate speech codes and all of this. So a number of these students are used to being coddled. They are used to having their emotions about what other people are saying validated. And, you know, Cleese is great because he says, you know, offense, offense. Well, there's some people you do want to offend. And, you know, he talks about it's good to offend certain people. And an offense is nothing that you have a right to be protected from. Uh, but, It's quite insightful to observe. There's these students, they can't control their emotions. So what do they do? They try to control behavior. And again, at the Murray event, they didn't just, you know, get up and all turn their back at a certain point, uh, say boo a couple times. They disrupted the talk so much that it had to be moved into another room where it would be live streamed. They couldn't even do it in front of a crowd of people because these students physically would not allow it. And that's force. You know, you could say, oh, all they were doing was speaking and just standing there. That is force because they were disrupting an event on the property of the campus. They were not permitted to be doing that. They were exceeding the scope of their license, you know, to use the legal term. They do not have permission to behave that way in that space. So therefore they were in effect trespassing at that point. And that is violence. That is force. Regardless of they, you know, they try to paint it as peaceful. So then Murray and Stanger, they go in the other room and these kids, they're banging on the walls. They're setting off fire alarms. They're doing everything to make it impossible for this discussion to take place, even in a separate room, just between the professor and him, put out on live stream over the internet. They are physically doing whatever they can, trespassing in order to disrupt this speech. Why? Because they can't control their own emotions. 
they feel uncomfortable. And of course, what are they also admitting? They're admitting intellectual bankruptcy, that they don't have any speech to, uh, you know, to counter it with. Now, what we're going to get into when we get into the Simpsons piece is that there's a little bit more to it as well. And, and I'll get into that. But I thought it was quite insightful, this, this observation from Cleese. It's part of the story, right? He's kind of liberal, Cleese, and everything, but he's so good on some of the political correctness stuff. When people can't control their emotions, then they try to start controlling your behavior. Your behavior, your speech is the reason that they're so upset, and so they're going to try to shut you down. Now, why do they think that they're entitled to do this? A deeper answer to that question comes from Steve Simpson of ARI, and it's not surprising that he's the one who you know, is, is really kind of digging deep into this. This is his specialty over at ARI is, is freedom of expression. He says, many students have come to believe that offensive speech is a kind of threat and that force is an appropriate response. They believe this because they've been taught ideas that logically lead to these conclusions. If we want to understand what is going on and to combat it, we would do well to understand those ideas. And I would add, share the insights about these ideas from Steve Simpson with liberal professors on campus, liberal professors. If you guys encounter liberal professors who are sympathetic with, you know, kind of the backlash against this violence, right? Any of the Middlebury professors, for example, who signed on to this pro-free speech code that they put, you know, together in the wake of this horrible event on their campus, give them this, let them understand, uh, you know, and, and what Simpson goes through is he talks about first taking the student's own words of, you know, like, for instance, the ones who participated in the protest against Murray's talk. Um, what the students say is they say the, the protesters did not escalate violence, violence and had no plan of violent physical confrontation. This is what they state. In a shutdown of the lecture, hundreds of Middlebury students stood and turned their backs on Murray, reciting speeches and chanting in a peaceful and organized expression of their dissent, end quote. Now, this is from, that was from one of the students. Simpson writes, it's true that the initial protest of Murray's talk was not, strictly speaking, quote, violent, but that doesn't make it peaceful nor was it mere, quote, expression of dissent. It was physical disruption, right, Simpson, of an event on school property. You know, Murray was invited and everything. And he says, claiming that the protesters did not escalate violence and had no plan of, quote, violent physical confrontation, he says, is a dodge. He says, they planned to disrupt the event. Clearly, that's what they did. It wasn't an example of free speech in action, but an act of force designed to prevent others, the school, the student group who invited Murray and Murray himself from exercising their rights. Uh, he says that, that student protesters block speakers on campus frequently today does not change the nature of their actions, right? The fact that this happens all the time doesn't mean that it's somehow not wrong. Uh, and what this one civil rights attorney, Harvey Silvergate, explained in the Boston Globe, he says, one hiss and one boo 
is free speech. So if you're at an event, Charles Murray is speaking, you don't like him. If you have one hiss and one boo, maybe you stand up and turn your back at a certain point. You could say, okay, that's free speech. He says 25 hisses and boos in a row is disruption and is illegal, end quote. And again, it doesn't matter how many students do this. It's wrong. Simpson says, note the moral inversion in the student's attitude. If students physically disrupt an event by making it impossible for a speaker to be heard, that's, quote, peaceful protest. Peaceful protest by making it impossible. Simpson continues, if they are removed by security or prevented from blocking speakers after an event, that is violence. So the violence is used against them. They're, they're just peaceful. He says, what's the justification for the actions according to the students? Supposedly, the administration's support, this is what students say, the administration's support of a platform for white nationalist speech was a, quote, intense act of aggression towards the most marginalized members of the Middlebury community. It's aggression. And then they say their peaceful protest was met with escalating levels of violence by the administration and public safety. Again, these thugs, they're banging on the wall. They're setting off fire alarms, but oh no, it's peaceful, right? They escaped. They left the room. They went into the other room, but no, 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 they were peaceful. Alumni protested also, and they called Murray's presence at Middlebury, quote, a threat. Now, this idea of using violence as self-defense was also echoed by students at Berkeley, Um, There, the article also blamed the police for the escalating violence. They claimed that the riot was a form, and this was against, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, it was a form of self-defense, they thought, necessarily to protect the students from Milo. One student claimed that, quote, asking people to maintain peaceful dialogue with those who legitimately do not think their lives matter is a violent act, end quote. And then there was another student who argued that, well, you know, the peaceful efforts to oppose Yiannopoulos' presence on campus had failed, and so violence is the only alternative. They say, quote, of all the objections and cancellation requests presented to the administration, local government, and local police, the only one that was listened to was the sound of shattering glass, end quote. Again, go back to what John Cleese said you know, quoting the psychiatrist, they're very upset. They can't control their emotions. Their option then is to try to control their people's behavior. They tried at first, they say, to control other people's behavior by using speech, by making these requests, these demands that the Yiannopoulos appearance be canceled. But when that didn't work, oh, well, all they could do was use violence. That's what they say. Now, yeah, you say, okay, Yiannopoulos is no Charles Murray and et cetera. But nonetheless, this idea that somehow something that is offending to you is the equivalent of an assault, a physical assault, which you are justified in using violence in retaliation for, that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with. And if you go further down into, um, you know, Simpson's piece, I suggest you read the whole piece. I've got the link at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, or you could just look over at the Hill 
and search for Steve Simpson's name. It's at thehill.com. He says, where do students get this idea that speech is a form of force that is legitimately countered with force? He says, unfortunately, from many sources, the modern thinker, writes Simpson, who is probably most responsible for legitimizing the use of force against the, quote, wrong ideas, is Herbert Marcuse, widely considered the philosopher of the new left during the 1960s. In his essay, Repressive Tolerance, Marcuse argued that modern Western societies are inherently oppressive. Now I'm looking over here, making sure I'm still connected. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Um, I've got someone waiting on the line. I'll get you in a second. Okay. So, um, Sorry, I got interrupted. That's sad. Yeah, so modern Western societies are inherently oppressive. The main mechanism of this oppression is education and speech, which lulls the populace into accepting a social system that benefits the affluent at the expense of everyone else. The only way to overcome this injustice, in Marcuse's view, is to allow those who oppose the status quo to speak while silencing those who defend it. So now you can start to put together how it is that Trump winning the presidency has, you know, sort of lit a fire under this type of violent protest. It's encouraged this type of violent protest. It has distressed these students to the point where they believe that violence is necessary. Why? Because they think that under a Trump presidency, you're going to have the you know, status quo imposed upon them by Trump. And in some ways, there is some reason to think that there's an element of this, right? So, for example, we've got, you know, in Trump, instead of getting rid of the Department of Education, he appoints this Bessie Voss, who is a religious uh, activist and is probably going to try to push government schools and education towards endorsing a more religious point of view. You might say, well, you know, there's already faith there. It's just a different kind of faith. It's not conservative religious faith. It's more environmentalist faith and other types of faith. True, true, true. But they want their brand of faith. And, you know, you've got the leftists saying, oh, my gosh, our brand of faith is no longer going to be the status quo. And our only option is to go ahead and use violence against this. Skipping down, I just have to give kudos to Simpson because, you know, again, he's talking about the fact that, you know, there is a difference between speech and a threat, right? Um, It is not violence to use mere speech. Now, there is some, you know, type of speech act where you actually have incitement of violence or the making of a threat that is legitimately countered with force, right? You a government prosecute them or, you know, there's an exigent circumstance. Maybe you actually will use some sort of physical violence in the moment. You know, police get there or whatever. Uh, but if it's not that, right, if it's not incitement to violence, if it's not a threat, then otherwise you need to leave people free to speak. And the mere fact that you are all offended is not a justification to use force. But that is indeed the type of ideas that these kids are taught in school. And it would be nice 
if some of the more liberal professors, the liberal professors who are scratching their head and saying, how did it come to this? You know, we don't want Charles Murray to be physically attacked if he comes to campus. We want to disagree with him. We want to tell him why he's wrong, but we don't want him to be physically attacked. It would be nice if they could start to understand how it is that we got there. Right, Simpson, Ayn Rand once said that, quote, a gun is not an argument, end quote. And he says the reverse is also true. An argument is not a gun. Right? That's what these kids need to realize, that an argument is not a gun. He says if we forget the difference, we will end up with guns settling our disputes rather than arguments. That's awesome. Uh, Very powerful piece, as I said. Spread it around. If there's people on the left who you see who are honestly engaged in this effort to understand what has been going on on campus, how it got to this point, I think this piece by Simpson is a great step in the right direction. You know, like I've said recently about Milo, suppose you think that Milo is not a great advocate for freedom of expression. You think Steve Simpson is better. Okay, that's right. Share Simpson. But I think Milo has sort of his role to play in this as well. I'm I'm willing to hear argument otherwise, but I, I tend to take the view of John Stuart Mill on this, where if conformity and everything is being almost forced on campuses right now, conformity of thought, then having someone come to a campus who is, you know, saying things purposefully to challenge the politically correct status quo. I think there's a value to that. I'm going to go ahead and grab this call that I've got here. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. This is Quinn Barden, your not-so-secret crush from a couple weeks ago. Oh, hi. How are you, Quinn? Hi. I'm not calling to send you another marriage proposal. Okay. But I do want to touch on several very serious issues you've raised here, three of them specifically. Mm -hmm. The first is the Texas bill that's being proposed. I'd like to say that I am a very strong proponent of reproductive freedom, and reproductive freedom includes voluntary eugenics. And this bill is a major affront to anyone who values such freedom. It is absolutely the right of parents to create the best possible life for themselves. And the best possible life includes rearing and producing the best possible children. This bill, this policy is cover for health care fraud. Like yes. people from across the political spectrum, you know, pro-choice, leftists, even they, they should be getting behind the opposition to this bill. This is absolutely intolerable. And yes. you are absolutely right to believe that under a Trump administration, policies would proliferate. Remember, it was Mike Pence who, as governor of Indiana, signed into law a bill that would prohibit abortions based on genetic screening, any type of genetic screening. Wow. Yeah. Now, really um, now, Quinn, Quinn, I want to just, you know, kind of interrupt a little bit. I would believe that, yes, would believe, I'm not going to couch it in those terms. I do believe that there is a legal right to abort for whatever reason, at least up until 
you know, say the beginning of the third trimester, and we could start to talk about where you would draw the line. Genetic yeah, testing I mean, that's, that's, that's is really well. The, let me let me, finish, let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Genetic testing is so powerful and effective now that you can have any genetic test that you want to have done probably by the time the fetus is ten weeks into gestation, right? And you know, ten weeks is way early enough to have a safe. Uh, abortion that would be within the woman's interest. You know, it's in no woman's interest to wait until the third trimester to abort a fetus, you know, that you could have tested and, and known about, you know, that was having serious problems and stuff in the, in the first trimester. But you mentioned the word eugenics, right? And I personally, more, I, I, I morally would be very, you know, uh, opposed to anything that would be more, eugenics versus, for example, just terminating a fetus that had severe defects. You know, there are a number of even chromosomal defects that if you talk to a doctor, they'll tell you that they don't really have much of an effect on the quality of life. So there are certain genetic defects that do have an effect on the ability of the human being to, you know, be a normal, rational, intelligent, productive human being with a happy life, you know, physically, you know, normal and everything else versus selecting for sex. You know, the idea of aborting a fetus because you got the wrong sex, I would be personally myself morally opposed to that. I'd be pretty horrified at, at aborting simply for the sex of the fetus. Um, right, as would I. But I or or, or even sexual life. orientation. Suppose suppose they come up with a test someday. It's like, okay, your baby is going to be gay. I would yes. think aborting aborting for that reason would be abominable. But if you you know your baby is going to be born with a severe deficiency in IQ or severe physical deformities. But you know this idea it's like eye color and you know the, whenever you think eugenics, you think of you know, Hitler trying to have the perfect Aryan race or something. I would reject anything along those lines. You'd have to talk yeah. about a severe defect that would affect quality of life, you know, the ability to live a happy, productive life. Okay. Personally, I agree with that, but I still respect the rights of parents to yeah. collectively. So the rights on the one hand versus morality on the other, for, right? Yeah. Um, for non-life-threatening reasons. I mean, eugenics is just a term coined by Francis Galton, cousin to Charles Darwin, to refer to good breeding. That's all it means. And there okay. are varying degrees of rational criteria that one can apply to eugenics. Now, let me just state as um, to bookend this, this point that I strenuously oppose coercive reproductive policies, i.e., like the uh, e.g. the eugenics of the Nazis, as strenuously as I support the right of people to voluntarily choose not to contaminate the gene pool to the extent of their own genetic deficiencies. That's all I'll say on that. Second, free speech and myelinopolis. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, may or may not be an objectivist. Um, it depends on certain, how certain metaphysical terms are defined. But if I'm not, I'm still the biggest fan of Ayn Rand as one could be without being an objectivist. And okay. I notice a lot of um, people who call themselves objectivists, Euron Brook included, are highly critical of Milo Yiannopoulos 
And I think this criticism is somewhat unjustified. I am a huge, huge fan of Milo. And Mm -hmm. I think that while his politics are obviously imperfect, it's almost irrelevant because he's really not a policy wonk. He's he's a cultural gadfly. And in that capacity, he is an immense force for good in promoting and defending free speech in the venue where free speech should be challenged more, uh, ch- uh, sorry, cherished more than anywhere else, the university campus. Yes. And for that, I just deeply respect and admire everything he does in its defense. Yeah, I mean, and you know, what we're, what we're presented, he, he has gone both now on to campuses and then in environments where he is threatened because he's gay and he goes into a Sharia neighbor you know sharia governed neighborhood or something this is bravery uh bravery against bad forces in the culture that he is showing is he perfect not by any stretch but is he sometimes acting in a heroic and brave manner one that is worthy of admiration i believe so there was a friend of mine on facebook who posted something about if you say that um Milo or Steven Crowder or a hero, there's something seriously wrong with you, especially if you're an objectivist. And I don't really hardly ever talk about Steven Crowder. I, I like some of what he does, whatever, but I haven't looked at his stuff for a long time. But with Milo, I've expressed some admiration for him. And, you know, am I as convinced that he's a hero than I am about, say, Edward Snowden? Not necessarily, but I would say that he's done some heroic things and that he is on the whole, I would say admirable given the things that he's overcome and and the type of good that he's trying to do in the culture, given, you know, his own challenges in life and everything. So yeah, I have some admiration for him. So I went ahead and posted, I said, Milo is hot, too bad he's gay. Uh, You know, just (laughs) that, that kind of attitude, you know, oh, well, don't express any admiration for this guy because then there's seriously something wrong with you. And I'm going to tell you that there's something wrong with you if you're an objectivist and you think that there's something admirable about this guy. People can disagree. People have different contexts. They have different factors that they're using to evaluate Milo. I'm taking it from the context of what Milo has overcome from his background and his, in his childhood, um, you know, how he's dealing with the, the issue of the homosexuality and all that stuff how intelligent and articulate he is and how he's out there bravely fighting for the cause of free speech and against the oppression of Sharia uh, as a homosexual man and, and also as a homosexual conservative as well. You know, he's, he, he's so in your face about this sometimes. And I, I like to argue with him on Instagram when I can as well. So I, you know, I disagree with him. You're going to, but I also admire him in a certain way and, and I get, you know, I'm going to fight back against these people who say, oh, you know, you can't admire him if, if you're an objectivist. He is a mixed case. He, I think, pre- presents some value in, in the cause. Yeah, you often hear the charge of nihilism leveled against them, and to a certain extent that is true. But I believe there is such thing as a useful nihilist when the target of his destructive activities is the most destructive ideology Modern now here, here's, here's the thing. If, 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 if the thing that you're fighting is nihilist, the fact that you fight it in a 
you know, so-called destructive way or whatever, is that itself bad? Um, the thing that came to mind when you were saying that, you know, is, is a nihilist. I've got an article from New York Times just talking about, you know, what the latest is about the healthcare thing is that the Senate wants to modify the House version and make it even more socialist, right? Um, may as well not even replace Obamacare with the stuff that the GOP is going to turn out. But in any event, if you, if you look at the language of the New York Times article, uh, let me go ahead and, and see if I can pull it up because I just think it's instructive the language that the New York Times uses to describe opposition to Obamacare. Let me see if I can find it here. Okay, yeah, here it is. Okay, so Speaker Paul Ryan counting on the deficit reduction that was going to happen in his version, as well as tax cuts for high earners and insurance and medical device companies to entice members whose Republican constituents want to see the law crumble. Right? So they use this language, you know, something is crumbling, it's destruction, right? And the thing that's going to be destroyed if they actually manage to pass a proper repeal bill, the thing that's going to be destroyed is something that itself is destructive, which is Obamacare. But you see how the New York Times will use this language. So I asked the same thing about Yiannopoulos, right? Maybe you don't like his methods. He's just a firebrand. He's, you know, I think gadfly is a, is a more positive term uh, than, you know, some sort of firebrand or, um, you know, bomb thrower, people will call him. There's a, there's a number of words that people use in terms. But, it, you know, his methods, maybe they're a bit uncouth and in your face and confrontational and stuff, but he's fighting the bad stuff. He's choosing, as far as I can tell, the right targets, as well as the stuffiness among the religious conservatives. It's the religious conservatives who felt it necessary to take him down when he was selected to be a keynote speaker for CPAC. They wanted to yeah, see him. Yeah, and the rest of those fascists. Yeah. What they did to Milo was disgraceful. Yes, I believe so. And, and you know, again, you disagree with Milo? It's, it's not – and what did they do? I mean, they did the same thing, right? They did the same thing that these leftist thugs on the college campuses are doing. They were outraged that Milo was going to be given a platform at CPAC, and they wanted to control that. And what was their version of the bomb throwing? Their version was to unfairly take Milo out of context and put the biggest smear out there in the world, which everybody picked up and bought – CPAC disinvited him, et cetera. And there's Milo. He's out there. He he's innocent, you know, on that ground, right? You know, they, he was taken out of context and smeared with respect to that pedophilia stuff. He was not only taken out of context. Yeah. The, con- the controversial remarks were completely doctored and rearranged. For example, um, what they did was juxtapose him saying that consent is completely arbitrary with him recounting his sexual experiences as a 13-year-old boy, implying that he was implying that, like, consent laws are completely arbitrary. Right. Um, which he never said and actually refuted in that same interview. He said, I think the current age of consent at age 18 is just fine. Right. Right. Yes. And, and, I've, and I've seen him on his press conference doing exactly the same thing. 
Um, my, my you 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 had you had another point you want to make because I'm I'm actually starting to get up to the top of the hour and I've got to go on to some other uh, program notes. Yeah, just quickly, um, Milo will cover. He'll get his book deal back. It will only embolden his fans. He'll be fine. I'm not too worried about Milo. My third point is on Charles Murray, mm-hmm. who, like Milo, I often don't agree with, but I profoundly respect, especially after he published The Bell Curve. Now, I tend to come down on the side of Thomas Sowell in his refutations of much of Murray's treatment of the relationship between race and intelligence. Okay. Performance differences on IQ tests among, say, immigrant populations tend to diminish at a rate that corresponds with the rate at which they assimilate into their adopted culture. So okay. Murray was wrong on that. I think he subsequently acknowledged this. But what I respect is him raising the conversation and even the manner in which he raised this conversation about biological determinants of intelligence and other factors um, is very important. And I think he's been unfairly vilified for this. Even, right. And, yeah, and I think with this, you know, it isn't racist at all. Th- and and that's, that's, that's what I'm hearing is that it, it, you even, might haven't even read it. Sorry. Right. I'm sorry, Amy. Oh no, no. I was just, I was just saying. I, I, I have heard that it is indeed not racist. That a lot of people might be uncomfortable with the conclusions. And, and I tend to agree with you that yes, in some of the IQ tests, there might be a cultural element such that people who do not assimilate into a culture are not going to be able to perform as well on a particular IQ test, right? Yes. Furthermore, it's impossible to test innate cognitive ability purely with an IQ test because obviously they cannot be administered to infants. Erudition is always a factor. And right. subsequently, erudition relates to culture and different emphases on uh, study and work ethic, etc. Yes. The final point yes. I'll make about IQ tests is that there is a biological basis to intelligence. Intelligence definitely runs in families irrespective of their emphasis on education. However, most of the difference between individuals in terms of genetics varies more than genetics vary between race. And there is no evidence that any of the genetics underlying racial phenotype correspond to cognition whatsoever. Right. That's right. my current understanding of the biological basis of intelligence. Okay. Okay. Well, I obviously, you know, again, I would, I would reject the whole idea of, of racism. And I think today that the biggest challenge for anybody who wants to develop and use their mind is shutting off distractions and learning to focus on a task in front of them and, you know, read for sustained periods and all those things. Those are the biggest challenges right now. Uh, innate IQ differences, I guess sometimes they can be significant, but I think what you do with what you have, especially given today's high-tech society and all of the beautiful distractions in front of us right now, that that's the most important. Yeah. Definitely. And the final point I'll make about this is that even if there were significant differences in IQ attributable to either race or gender, it is not raw cognitive acuity that is the basis for human rights, that is Mm -hmm. individual rights. It's the capacity to reason and think for yourself. Right. Yes. 
And it would I be agree. really nice if um, a lot of people, just un- especially in academia, understood this a little bit. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, Amy. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, thanks for calling in, Quinn, and we will talk again, I assume, at a certain point. I see you in the chat room as well. Let me get over here to the studio. Okay, I got him back on mute. I've got a couple other people on hold, but if you did want to talk, you have to go ahead and press the one key over here in the chat room. Yeah, race is an inessential concrete. Um, definitely, says Daniel. Uh, oh, they were also talking a bit about nihilism in there, that Rand's bar for declaring somebody a nihilist was quite high. And, it, you know, what she would say is you're, you've got Kant, Joyce, Dewey, some of those intellectuals, they qualify as nihilists so that, that you would say mile is a nihilist. I, 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 again, legacy currently out there. Okay, something unprecedented has happened. It is a situation in which it looked in the studio like I was connected and that everything was good and the time was counting down. And apparently I was not connected. (laughs) Craig says, late, did I miss anything? So I'm only back for the last, what, 10 minutes or something, and then the the show is over, actually. Yeah, you've got sound. So right after I finished with the caller, so with, so I have been talking for quite some time since the caller was off and that means that there's a lot that we've missed this is this is really quite sad um what i've been on just now talking before i realized that we were disconnected was the issue of health care did i did you guys even hear me speak about california and the art gallery waiting for you guys in the chat room to tell me Did you hear me talk about California and the art gallery that was closed down? No, not even that. Okay, well, that was the last part of my issue of free speech. We have the culture of censorship also entering the realms of the anti-gentrification movement. And if you check out my post of the same article on Facebook, which I've made public, you can... look at the musings of the Facebook group in Boyle Heights that is responsible for the closing down, the pressuring and the closing down of this one art gallery. You can also see in the article itself the appeasing claims of another art gallery who was actually trying to, quote, negotiate with the anti-gentrification movement. I also discussed the fact that gentrification And refusing to be part of gentrification is something that you're supposed to do to check your white privilege, as Jerome discussed on his show on Monday. I went ahead. Yeah, so I was at the very beginning of mentioning that art gallery when I got cut out. Okay, that's fine. Uh, So do check out the article. I was horrified that the gallery actually succumbed to the pressure from these thugs. But again, they are offended. They can't control their emotions and so what are they doing they're trying to control the actions they want to scare these art galleries out of their neighborhood even if it means bad things economically for themselves 
it's a culture of censorship, as I've discussed on my show a couple of times. That's what I've coined the phrase for this culture of censorship. It's not censorship by government, but it's people within a culture who have decided that it's appropriate to use violence now. We're seeing overt, open calls for violence against people who say things that you find offensive or just do things that you think are offensive in the spreading of art, of all things. An art gallery. An art gallery is offensive to these people. And not because of you know any particular truly offensive thing about it. It's just the mere presence of art galleries in their neighborhood. It's white art is what they want to say. And it wasn't even white art, apparently. But that doesn't really matter. The truth doesn't matter to these people. What matters is that they're offended, they're upset, so they're going to try to control what you do. Cleese really had it right. Okay, so let's go back. Uh, I was talking about the whole, you know, kind of Senate modification of the House GOP version of the bill. The things that they're calling for now, right? The Senate is saying in order for, you know, the, the replacement bill to be palatable for them, they're all scared, right? These Republicans are scared because the CBO report came out. The CBO report said, oh, you know, 24 million people are going to lose their health insurance and there's going to be this deficit reduction and whatever, you know, so they're, but what does the CBO scoring do? The CBO scoring takes for granted Obamacare itself, right? And that's what the New York Times article is doing too. They're talking about, oh, it's crumbling, you know, Obamacare is a destructive piece of legislation. It should never have been passed. But heaven forbid we don't take that as the baseline and score what the Republicans are doing in relation to that. That's exactly what the CBO is doing. So if you see in the program notes, I tweeted out yesterday my little analogy. My analogy was that if you take Obamacare as the baseline, you know, life under Obamacare as the baseline when you're evaluating the various repeal and replace options, then that is exactly the same thing morally as taking the pre-1967 borders as the basis for the so-called negotiations between Israel and the so-called Palestinians. It is immoral, for example, to require Israel to use as a baseline borders that were unsustainable, that make it impossible for their country to survive. To have that as the starting place is horrific. And similarly, the idea that you're going to take for granted Obamacare, which has been around like five years or something, and is you know pushing us towards socialized medicine, that's your baseline that you're going to use when you evaluate this other stuff. Everybody needs to reject this. There was uh, Robert Bidnato put a kind of less obtuse analogy out there, which was great. It was like if the CBO scored you know, what was going on uh, around the Civil War, they would say that, you know, X number millions of slaves are going to lose their homes and everything. <laughs> like, you know, totally drop the context that these people are slaves and that they're going to be free. And, you know, oh, they're, they're losing their homes and their health care or something like that. This is slavery. We are all enslaved to each other under Obamacare. And the Republicans are apparently hell-bent on perpetuating it. Uh, it says that 
what the Senate Republicans want to see is, quote, lower insurance costs for the poor. Right. And this is it. You know, this is the way The New York Times puts it. They want to see want to see lower insurance costs for the poorer, older Americans and an increase in funding for states with high populations of hard to insure people. They said those changes would greatly improve the chances of Senate approval, even though they might further alienate conservatives, end quote. Now, they don't bother to put close paren and steal more money from people, right? Steal more, because that's what you're doing. You're stealing more money from people. You are enslaving one segment of the population to others. Uh, there was one quote from it where they, they were actually saying how the cost of health insurance is being shifted from younger, healthier Americans to older, sicker Americans. And my answer is, oh, you mean shifted back because it was already shifted to the younger ones under Obamacare? No, no, no. We can't remember that. That was, you know, five years ago. We can't remember the context before Obamacare. Life before Obamacare looked like ancient history. It's ridiculous. Oh, I think, what, have I dropped again? No, okay, okay. I've I've got the little lady in my ear. Um, so I guess I'm going to have to continue next week now that I have gotten disconnected with the whole thing about the spontaneous order. Uh, the lesson, and I quote, I put a quote out there from Hayek on the "Don't Let It Go Unheard" page. You can check it out. The lesson is that whenever the government intervenes in the economy, they prevent all of the wisdom that comes with allowing the market to operate spontaneously, all that wisdom is gone. And that's what we're seeing in the fallout with Obamacare here is that the spontaneous order and allowing the people who know the most about the proper decisions to make in an economy, all of that is lost with government intervention. And it seems like, unfortunately, the Republicans are hell-bent on continuing to impose more controls on healthcare. So everyone, I'm out of time. Go to don'tletitgo.com to continue the conversation. Check out the rest of the program notes I couldn't get to. Hopefully I will not get disconnected next week. I'll be back here again, same time next Wednesday. Take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.